It's hard to overstate just how important oxygen is to life on Earth. Almost every living thing on the planet needs it to convert fuel into energy. We can't survive without it, not even for a handful of minutes. Fortunately, our bodies know this, and they've developed several rapid response systems to keep us going when oxygen runs low. It's yet another miracle of biology, but this miracle isn't foolproof. A few cancers have found a bug in the system. They found a way to sound a false alarm, to make the body think it's low on oxygen when it's not, and then to hijack the body's response to feed hungry tumors. It's a complicated process and a fascinating one, and it earned one Dana-Farber doctor the biggest prize of all. On behalf of the Nobel Assembly at Karolinska Institutet, it is my great privilege to convey to you our warmest congratulations. I now ask you to step forward to receive your Nobel Prize from the hands of His Majesty the King. I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. On October 7, 2019, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences announced that Dana-Farber Dr. William Kalin was one of three physician researchers who'd won that year's Nobel Prize in medicine. I was asked the night before the phone call whether I was going to be able to sleep, and I said I'd be able to sleep because I think the chance of winning is no better than 1%, but because it's 1%, I should probably leave my ringer on my cell phone. Uh, And indeed, my cell phone did ring at 4.40 a.m. to tell me I had won the prize. Now, it's always great to dream. If you're a kid who loves soccer, you dream about winning the World Cup. If you're a kid who loves music, you dream about sold-out stadiums. And if you're a kid who loves science... I had the great fortune of growing up in the 60s, and uh, of course that was the post-Sputnik era, and I also had heard about the work of Jonas Salk, and I remember getting the polio vaccine. And so I grew up thinking about scientific heroes, and had heard about the Nobel Prize, and you know I, I knew it was out there, but of course it was unimaginable that it would ever happen to me. Bill Kalin had lots of dreams as a kid and as a young man. Not all of them came true, at least not at first. I dreamt as a young boy of going to Harvard, and I was rejected from Harvard. I wound up going to Duke. I applied to Harvard Medical School, was again rejected, but I was fortunate enough to go to Duke Medical School. I applied to Harvard for my internship and residency, was again rejected, but had the good fortune of going to Johns Hopkins. And then I finally made it in 1987 as a medical oncology fellow and came to the Dana-Farber. Today, Kalen is the Sidney Farber Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. But in 1987, he was a young postdoc at Dana-Farber. He needed 18 months of laboratory work so he could be board certified in oncology. So he started knocking on doors. One of those doors belonged to David Livingston, a physician scientist who'd supervised some of Kalen's clinical work at Dana-Farber. It was a very good fit. Livingston was impressed from the start. And he asked more questions than, than I asked him. 
But what was amazing to me was that this chap who'd never worked on the kind of problems that my colleagues and I were working on in the lab at that time, asked questions that were apt. And then he began to ask me what we were working on that, you know, might be of interest to someone, someone like him. I mean, this man is modest. There was lots of work in the Livingston lab that interested Bill Kalin, but one thing in particular, something called the RB gene. RB, that's short for retinoblastoma. And retinoblastoma is a rare eye cancer that mostly affects children. Physicians had already observed that in some families, this eye cancer was passed down from generation to generation. In the 1980s, researchers identified the gene involved in this transmission. They called it the RB gene. Several scientists had observed that when the RB gene was damaged, the eye cancer seemed to flourish. What Livingston and others wanted to know was why. What was the link between the defective RB gene and this particular form of eye cancer? What Bill Kalin came and wanted to work on was the structure of the retinoblastoma gene with the idea that maybe from understanding the structure and how the structure worked, it might be possible to gain some insight into how the retinoblastoma gene worked. And that's exactly what he set out to do. And that's exactly what he accomplished and did it elegantly. We need a break for clarification here. It's true that Kalen and Livingston were interested in the RB gene, but the structure that Kalen charted wasn't the gene, it was the protein that the gene produced, because it was this protein, the RB protein, that did the heavy lifting. It disposed of cells that might otherwise develop into cancer. Scientists, as you know, are awful about their jargon, but genes are really just blueprints, typically, for making proteins. And so when scientists say they're studying genes, they really mean they're studying the proteins that are made with those instructions. Kalen looked hard at the protein that was made from the instructions in the RB gene, and he saw that the structure of that protein resembled a sort of pocket. He wanted to know how the pocket that he discovered in the retinoblastoma gene works. So right away I know we're talking about the mother load here, because you're talking about a gene whose product stops cancer. So, the RB gene which produces a protein that helps stop cancer. Kalen discovered that a part of the structure of this RB protein, a part called the pocket, helps it bind with the protein that causes the childhood eye cancer. When this bond occurs, the cancer-causing protein is almost completely neutralized, disarmed. With Livingston's help, Kalen showed that it was the structure of the RB protein, the pocket, that helped it suppress tumor cells. It was one of the most powerful experiments I'd seen, designed, enacted, and controlled, because Bill is famous for controlling his experiments, that is, testing the validity of every result in a way that's impeccable, that it virtually took my breath away. He had, in one experiment, demonstrated how the retinoblastoma pocket actually works generically, and even in some detail. <laughs> That's a hell of a thing for a postdoctoral fellow to do, and it wasn't the only accomplishment he had made. He made a number of them in my lab. 
1992, after five years with Livingston, Kalen got his own lab. Now he needed a project, something timely, something compelling, something that matched his experience and could also break new ground. It didn't take him long to find it. In 1993, the National Cancer Institute isolated a gene called VHL. That's VHL for von Hippel-Lindau. VHL was a tumor suppressor gene. Check! Kalen had studied tumor suppressor genes with Livingston. And he was familiar with VHL. He was particularly interested in two clinical features that often appeared in patients who had tumors linked to VHL disease. These patients tended to produce new blood vessels and they tended to produce additional red blood cells. Another check. We say that these people have so-called von Hippel-Lindau disease. So one thing is they develop several different types of tumors, one of which is kidney cancer, which is one of the 10 most common cancers in the developed world. And I thought everything else being equal, why not work on a common cancer as opposed to an uncommon cancer? It seemed at the time a lot of our progress related to cancers that were fascinating, but really numerically quite rare. So this seemed like an opportunity to really tackle one of the top 10 cancers. The assumption being that if we understood the VHL gene better, we would understand more what makes a kidney cancer tick. So, a tumor suppressor gene, a disease he was familiar with, and a chance to help large numbers of patients. Those three check boxes would already have been enough, but there was more. The tumors these patients develop are notoriously rich in blood vessels. We would say they're highly angiogenic, and there was a lot of excitement in the early 90s trying to treat cancers by blocking their ability to obtain blood vessels. And so I, I thought by studying the VHL gene, we would learn something about the molecular control of angiogenesis. Angiogenesis, the production of blood vessels. For scientists in search of a problem, VHL seemed to have it all. The clincher, though, came when Kalen recalled how some patients with VHL disease produce too many red blood cells. And what angiogenesis and red blood cell production have in common is that they would normally be activated or induced if a tissue, for example, or your body wasn't getting enough oxygen. And so that was really the clue that if we could learn more about the VHL gene, we would also learn perhaps how the cells and tissues in your body sense and respond to changes in oxygen, which wasn't really understood at that time. So here's the mission. We know there's a link between the defective VHL gene and certain types of cancer. We also know that some of these cancers cause patients to produce additional blood vessels and additional red blood cells. What we don't know is how we get from A to Z. That's what Bill Kalin wanted to discover. The story had a beginning and it had an end, but the all-important middle was missing. So we set out to understand what the VHL protein actually did, what, what it did biochemically, how it did its work, and why, when it was defective, you developed these tumors. So where to start? You design experiments that can reveal, at least in part, how that protein works. So Kalen and his colleagues cultivated cell lines derived from kidney cancers in a plastic laboratory dish. These cells carried a mutant or defective version of the VHL gene. When these cells were injected into laboratory mice, the mice developed tumors. Then, working with the same cell lines, Kalen injected the normal VHL gene. 
when these cells with the normal VHL gene were injected into laboratory mice, the mice did not develop tumors. Mice who got cells with the defective gene got cancer. Mice who got cells with the normal version of the gene didn't. This was visible proof that VHL did in fact suppress tumors. But perhaps the more important discovery we made is once we now had kidney cancer cells that did or did not have an intact version of the VHL gene, we could grow them under low oxygen or high oxygen, and then we could ask them how they responded. And in particular, we could measure certain molecular distress signals that you and I would normally produce if we were starved of oxygen. It sounds a little complicated, but it's really classic science. You've just proven in laboratory conditions that VHL suppresses tumors. Now you want to draw a connection between the defective form of that gene and the production of excess blood vessels and red blood cells. You know the connection exists because you've seen it in patients. You just can't explain it, not yet. So what do you do? You take two groups of cells from the same cell line you used before. These cells are identical except for a single factor. One of them has the VHL gene, and the second one doesn't. You grow each group in a low oxygen environment, and then you grow them in a high oxygen environment. And as we had guessed, the cells lacking the VHL gene, they couldn't sense oxygen. They behaved as though they weren't getting enough oxygen 24-7, and they produced high levels of these distress signals that normal cells would only make if they were under low oxygen. Okay, here's where we are now and where Kalen was. We know some patients with a defective VHL gene develop cancer. And we know that some of those VHL patients produce excess blood vessels and excess red blood cells. Those blood vessels and blood cells funnel additional oxygen to the tumor and fuel its growth. Now Kalen has discovered that cells lacking the VHL gene can't sense oxygen. They think they're starving, even when they're not. And because they think they're starving, they send out an SOS. Distress signals calling for more oxygen, even when there's plenty of it. So, the defective VHL gene hacks the cellular alarm system and tricks the body into feeding those tumors. Certain cancers, and kidney cancer would probably be at the top of the list, hijack this oxygen-sensing mechanism for their own evil purposes, and in particular to trick the body into providing oxygen to the tumor. And so amongst the things that the tumor does is it stimulates new blood vessels to be formed by the host to provide it with a blood supply. By the late 1990s, Bill Kalin had answered many of his initial questions. He'd gotten from A to K in the story he was writing. He'd observed that some VHL tumors tricked the body into sending out an SOS, distress signals that stimulated the growth of new blood vessels. What he still didn't know was how it all worked. There was still more of the story to write, and he wasn't writing it alone. Researchers at other institutions were also working in parallel on hypoxia, on conditions of low oxygen. These researchers included Greg Semenza at Johns Hopkins and Sir Peter Ratcliffe at Oxford. Those parallel lines soon converged. We got a big break in 1999 when Sir Peter Ratcliffe showed 
that cells lacking in the VHL protein couldn't destroy a protein in the cell that scientists refer to as hypoxia-inducible factor, or HIF for short. And HIF is sort of a master regulator of those distress signals we talked about a moment ago. Here's another character in the story, HIF, hypoxia-inducible factor. It's a protein complex that governs much of the body's reaction to low oxygen. In many cases, most cases, HIF is beneficial. HIF helps alpine climbers ramp up their red blood cells at altitude. HIF helps stroke and heart attack victims grow new blood vessels to supply the damaged brain or heart. In many cases, most cases, HIF is only present when there isn't enough oxygen. So what switches HIF on and off? How does HIF know when to call for reinforcements? With further experiments, Kalen showed that when oxygen levels were normal, VHL gets rid of HIF. The functioning VHL protein binds directly to HIF, and it targets HIF for destruction. Let's break that down. When oxygen is present, VHL acts like an advanced scout for waste disposal. It surveys the neighborhood, finds cells left out on the curb, and puts a tag on them to make sure they go straight to the scrap heap. With HIF tagged and toted away, there's no distress signal, no false alarm. So that was incredibly exciting, and now we're in the year 2000. But it didn't answer the question, well, how does the VHL protein know, if you will, whether oxygen is or is not present, and hence whether it should or should not bind to HIF and mark it for destruction? And so that was the puzzle that both our laboratory and Sir Peter Ratcliffe's laboratory set out to uh, solve. How does it know? That was the question. The Nobel Prize winning question, or so it turned out. Neither Ratcliffe nor Kalen could know it at the time. They were just doing what scientists do. Pose a question, test it under laboratory conditions, examine the results, and pose new questions. The newest question? How the VHL protein, which helps to suppress tumors, knows whether or not to tag HIF. HIF. That's the command center for the body's response to hypoxia. In other words, how does the VHL protein decide that the supplemental oxygen system isn't needed and should be carted away? Both laboratories, one in Boston, the other in Oxford, set out to write the next chapter. And what we both showed simultaneously, working independently, was in the presence of oxygen, a little chemical flag, which scientists would refer to as proleal hydroxylation, gets added to the HIF, and that serves as the signal for VHL to bind. And this turned out to be extremely satisfying because in this little flag, there actually is an oxidant atom. So even I could understand how this would be linked to oxidant availability. Now, it turns out to be a little bit more nuanced than that, as often is the case in biology. But to a first approximation, this was a remarkably simple and elegant way for cells to know whether they we're getting enough oxygen because they actually use the oxygen to make the flag that then determines whether HIF will be destroyed or not. It's almost a fail-safe system. When oxygen levels are normal, the system uses that oxygen to print a chemical tail to pin on HIF. It's like a label you might print and stick on an old TV you want collected. VHL reads the label and takes HIF to the dump. But when oxygen is low or absent, the system can't print the label because it needs an oxygen atom to make the label. VHL leaves HIF on the curb, and HIF sounds the hypoxia alarm, 
all good, except when it's a false alarm. And when the VHL protein can't sense oxygen, when it can't read the label, the false alarm goes off. Kalen knew he'd found the missing piece to the puzzle. Now, he wondered whether Peter Ratcliffe in Oxford had also found it. The two had what Kalen describes as a gentleman's agreement. If both laboratories were close to a solution, they would publish their papers together. And so when we understood the nature of the chemical flag, uh, I called up uh, Peter Ratcliffe to see where they stood. And I described this as sort of like the dance of the seven veils because I didn't want to give away the answer if he was nowhere close to the answer, in part because I didn't want to preempt him from having the joy of making the discovery uh, himself. Uh, so uh, we sort of started, to use another metaphor, flipping over cards until it was pretty clear uh, we both had the same answer, and then we agreed to co-publish. Kalen and Radcliffe published their papers together in 2001. Subsequent experiments demonstrated that HIF was a major culprit in kidney cancer. So the next logical step seemed to be to work towards a drug that would inhibit HIF, to stamp out the problem at the source. Unfortunately, at the time, drug manufacturers didn't think they could make a molecule that would bind with HIF. It didn't have the right nooks and crannies to make it an attractive target. But fortunately, we knew that one of those genes regulated by HIF was vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF for short. VEGF. It's a growth factor, and it's regulated by HIF. VEGF induces the growth of new blood vessels. And certainly VEGF is, 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 has become famous uh, in terms of being produced by tumors, especially kidney tumors, as a means of inducing new blood vessels. And so we and others worked with companies to test VEGF inhibitors in various cancers, including especially kidney cancer. And we now have seven VEGF inhibitors approved for the treatment of kidney cancer, uh, as we had uh, hoped and predicted. Unlike HIF, VEGF turned out to be a very attractive target. And drug makers have become more agile since Kalen first discovered the oxygen-sensing mechanisms in VHL and HIF. A few years ago, a small Texas biotech company came out with a molecule that can inhibit HIF. That drug has shown great promise in phase two and phase three trials for kidney cancer and von Hippel-Lindau disease. In addition to drugs that inhibit HIF, Kalen's research has also led to drugs that stimulate HIF. Those drugs can help patients recover from heart attack or stroke or counteract the effects of anemia. It's a very impressive yield for some very impressive research, but it's not over. Kalen thinks that one day it may be possible to go even further up the chain, to correct VHL disease at its source, at the VHL gene. Scientists have already treated some diseases at the genetic level by altering a person's DNA to prevent or treat that disease. But it's a lot trickier with cancer. In order for the genetic treatment to work, close to 100% of the tumor cells have to take up the corrected gene. Because if it's not 100%, you can be sure that the cells that didn't take up the gene will quickly outgrow those cells that did take up the gene. So I think there'll have to be some further advances in gene therapy and gene delivery technologies. So we may get there. It certainly would be the more elegant solution, just actually correct the genetic defect itself 
rather than using drugs that sort of deal with the consequences of that defective gene. But we're not quite there yet. On the night of October 9th, 2019, the night before that year's Nobel Prize in Medicine was to be announced, Bill Callen says he thought he had a 1% chance of winning. He did, however, keep his cell phone ringer on. When we understood the oxidant sensing mechanism in the year 2000, you know, I was aware of the fact that this was the kind of discovery that might put you in the conversation for major prizes. But I, I think to my credit, I did a pretty good job ignoring that uh, as best I could because you know, I always tell young people, the real prize was participating in the discovery and seeing the result and understanding something that had never been understood before and just marveling at the beauty of the mechanism that nature had arrived upon. But despite his best efforts, he couldn't always ignore the call of the Nobel. Over the years, we did win several of the so-called pre-Nobel prizes, which made it even harder to ignore. So even though I did try to ignore it, when October was looming every year, it was in the back of my mind. Scientists like to joke about two conditions related to the Nobel Prize pre-Nobelitis and post-Nobelitis. In pre-Nobelitis, you become obsessed with winning the Nobel Prize. Your work and your life both suffer. In post-Nobelitis, the Nobel Prize winner becomes a celebrity and succumbs to the lure of fame and fortune. Again, your work and your life both suffer. Unfortunately, there are people who, you know, when they win the Nobel Prize, it becomes sort of the, the brass ring, and then they sort of jump off the rails and either go on the banquet circuit or, or become experts and things they're not really experts in. Kalen says he's done his best to ensure that the Nobel Prize has changed his life and his work for the better. There are still questions to be answered, still patients in the waiting room. There's too much work to do, and uh, so I, I allowed myself to enjoy it. It was a magical, wonderful week in Stockholm, and I'm going to try to judiciously try to use my Nobel Prize to increase awareness in science and supportive science. Bill Kalin wasn't the only Dana-Farber to leave his phone ringer on when he went to bed the night before the Nobel Prize in medicine was announced. David Livingston, Kalin's Dana-Farber colleague and former mentor, kept his phone on when he went to bed. And early the next morning, before the sun rose over Boston... I was not surprised to receive a call from Bill rather early in the morning to let me know that he'd won the Nobel Prize in medicine. I was utterly thrilled. I was just taken with the notion that, that justice, scientific justice had been done. A great scientist had won the greatest honor in all of biological and medical science. I was utterly thrilled. It's said there's no greater joy for a teacher than to see a student succeed. And it's hard to imagine a greater level of success for a mentor than to see a protege win the profession's most important prize. In our next episode, we look at the culture of mentorship at Dana-Farber. 
I have to say that the postdocs who work in my lab have generated really beautiful data. And I hope that I've conveyed to them that they themselves have produced their own da Vinci's. I'm Ken Schulman, and this is Unraveled, a Dana-Farber Cancer Institute podcast. What is it about Dana-Farber that makes it such a powerful adversary against cancer? It's hundreds of Dana-Farber researchers and clinicians making new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber discoverers. At Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Go to DanaFarber.org stories and see how what we do here changes lives everywhere.